0: Welcome to the Jeff and Alex podcast. I am Jeff Hillemeyer and with my friend, Alex Gonzalez, we explore topics that help you be your best self. And we also get to chat with some great guests. So join us now on the Jeff and Alex podcast.
1: Hello everyone and welcome to the Jeff and Alex podcast. Hello, Jeff Hillemeyer, how are you? How's it going, Alex Gonzalez? Doing, doing good, doing good. So what is new with you?
0: Actually, I was thinking about you um, this weekend. I watched as you should uh,
1: every weekend. By the way, <laughs> right? Well,
0: we record a lot of weekends, so it's,
1: that's it's, true. Exactly.
0: I was watching the Ted Lasso on uh, Apple TV. Yes, um, it's a uh, it's a, uh, and I've only I don't know how many episodes there are. I, I just watched the first one, but essentially, he's uh, <laughs> I won't I won't give give away too much, but he's an American. Um, football coach, right? Like division 2. Yeah. football. Um and then yeah, yeah. hired to run one of the more prestigious football soccer um teams in Europe and I, anyways, you're such a soccer fan, but I have you watched it?
1: Yeah. Do you know how Ted Lasso with the origin of it, that is?
0: Is this based on something true?
1: It's based on a commercial. So no about, I don't know, it's about maybe four I'm going to say call it 4 years maybe more ago. NBC bought the rights for the English for the uh, English Premier League, which is of course considered the top uh, professional soccer league uh, in the world because of the competition there in England. And as part of the promotion, and this is really when I think there's even pre-Atlanta United and all that. so this is really the momentum of of I mean it was a big deal for NBC to have this this pretty big uh, package, uh, the rights for the US for that. They got, I believe it was Jason Sudeikis, always mispronounced his name. was a former Saturday Night Live guy, I believe. He's in some movies to play the role of Ted Lasso. And the idea was you had this, just like the show, you had this football coach go over to England. And I think at the time it was Tottenham, which is of course where our friend Darren Eels of Atlanta United came from Mm -hmm. to coach them. And of course in the commercial, he gets fired much more. Actually the commercials were funny because he did not understand soccer so he did not understand the concept of a tie or either or a draw or that you know there weren't field goals and what and the the soccer firm was tackled but that's how that um, character so I was amazed to see this and I've actually watched a few episodes and they've shaped the character a little bit differently but yeah it's actually uh, I'm enjoying it I'm enjoying it the course, same, so, on Apple plus
0: so the same actor that did the commercial is is the star of the show
1: Same actor, and I'm pretty sure his co-star, which is the assistant coach, is also in the commercials too.
0: Crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was super popular. And if you get a chance, definitely go back. I'm sure it's on YouTube to watch. Uh They they did two extended commercials, kind of little four or five-minute movies maybe. There's an original one and then a second one where he uh, basically gets fired. I think he ends up coaching like a girls' soccer team in the U.S. or something. So it's pretty good. But yeah, no, I very much... Enjoy that show as well nice. too. Nice. So, so what? So what else have you been up to, Jeff? I, I, I actually I'm excited because I have on my list here, um, to listen to your, of course, you know, award winning podcast, Begin to Begin, <laughs> and uh, you've got a pretty cool guest with Ann Kramer.
0: Yeah, I, I um was thrilled that Ann said she would be a guest. Um, I you know anyone that has any exposure to Ann knows that she's just this burst of positivity. Um, somebody commented on the, on the podcast um, that she's the unofficial mayor of doing good in the city, <laughs> which I think is just so true. this classic. She's also known as the human exclamation point, um, which I think is, is you'll see if you watch the episode. But yeah, no, getting a chance to talk to her and um, learn about her journey, which is really fascinating how she got to be the person that she is. Um, it was a really good conversation. I was, I was thrilled she agreed.
1: Yeah, well, very good.
0: And and speaking of which, um, I was um, catching up on Disruptor Studio podcasts, uh, and yeah. you've had some amazing guests. Um, the Jay Bailey one is certainly one of my favorites, but then you just had the new one with Tristan
1: a week ago. Yeah, as, as we recorded this, yeah, the most recent one, we have some pretty cool ones coming up as well, too. Uh, but Tristan Walker, which is a name that it's interesting. People either know it really well because he's been on the cover of Fest Company, I think, multiple times. Uh, founder and CEO of Walker Brands, which was, uh, you know, was born in Silicon Valley. Um, And now they got acquired by Procter & Gamble in 2018. He is the first, um, I guess, uh, what what he said is the first black president within the Procter & Gamble system. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll tell you, uh, he's just an incredible leader, Um, incredible perspectives, Passionate about so many things, um, and we, we so we talked about everything from leadership to design to creativity to his passion about um, black economic empowerment. So I definitely would if you if you do not know Tristan, I would suggest people listen to get to know Tristan because he's just an amazing individual. We're very lucky to have him here in Atlanta. Super too. inspiring. And, and someone else we're looking to have in Atlanta is Doug Shipman, who uh, many people know until today, as we re, as we record this, it's actually his first day not in this role of, of CEO of Woodruff Arts Center, which um, is just an amazing uh, place. how How did you how do you know uh, Doug Jeff?
0: Oh, great question. I met Doug early days of the Center for Civil and Human Rights, um, and I think I was talking to him about helping with the website or, you know, anything that I could do to help because it was just such an inspiring thing. But I remember having meetings with him and he just had this little office um, that was like across the street from where the center is now Um, early days of him planning it. And just ever since then have kept in touch. We share a passion for, Uh, Many things, but um, Bobby Kennedy, um, which not many people do. So we've bonded over that. How about you? How did you first meet Doug? Uh,
1: You know, I met him through initially through my work uh, with the Metro Atlanta Chamber around innovation entrepreneurship, and he is actually, um, in addition to his passion just around the arts and and of course uh, civil rights and so forth, but in terms of the arts and creativity as you as you know, worked a lot in terms of colliding our tech and innovation economy with the arts, which I think was cool. So that's why I got to know him. But then uh, through our interaction on social media, we found out we're both super fans of Atlanta United. Yeah, so
0: You you and about 5 million other people.
1: Exactly. So we're, we've gotten to get pretty close about that. So I'm looking forward to talking to Doug. In fact, so let's actually bring Doug to join us and uh, have a conversation with him. Let's do it. Doug Shipman, welcome to the Jeff and Alex podcast. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks guys. It's good to see you. I haven't seen you in person in a while, so I'm
2: I'm glad to see your faces.
1: <laughs> it's been too long. And by the way, before we uh, you know, I have some show notes here that were different from the show notes Jeff sent me over cuz I was going to start out with my first question being do you prefer a 352 or 433 for Atlanta United? But since I don't we don't since Jeff doesn't want this to be an hour Atlanta United review show. And we know that Conti and Longshore do a good job at that. I'm gonna let Jeff start with the first question or else, you know. But we'll be coming back to it. Don't worry. (laughs) Okay. All right, I'll be ready.
0: We will definitely be coming back to it. Yeah, Doug, I just thought it'd be interesting if um I actually don't know if I know your story up until at least you know when you started getting involved in some of the bigger Atlanta initiatives. So can you give us the quick high level of like up to Woodruff on your career sure. and just actually where you grew up? Yeah. So
2: I grew up in a, a town called Bull Arkansas, a town of about 1200 people in the middle of Northern Arkansas. You could drive 125 miles in any direction and not run into a town of more than 10,000. So, you know, very rural, um, ended up coming to Atlanta on an, a scholarship at Emory named for uh, Robert Woodruff. Um, so that legacy brought me to Atlanta I got very interested in Atlanta history, civil rights history, and um, began to study that. That's where that interest began began to really bubble up. Um, Then I uh, went into the banking sector for a few years. I went to grad school at Harvard and did uh, joint degrees in public policy and theology. And my theology was a lot around religion and social movements. So people like King, Malcolm X, Gandhi, who have a religious aspect to to their social um, practice, And then I, uh, my wife wanted to go to med school. She brought us back to Atlanta. She went to Emory Med. Um, I worked for Boston Consulting Group, management consulting firm for several years. Um, We spent a year in India, which was uh, an interesting time to say the least, to be able to work and live there. Uh, And then I got pulled into a 10 week pro bono project um, for a, what was at that time called a civil rights museum by then mayor Shirley Franklin. That turned into 10 years of me um, being the founding CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. And I got to bring all that history. I had, I had studied all that academic work to try to, to found an institution. Um, and I'd always promised that when it opened, I would leave. And so it opened in 2014, and I uh, was the head of it for a year of operations, and I left in 2015. Went to Bright House Consulting when BCG um, bought Bright House, which is Joey Ryman's uh, firm that he founded. Many people know Joey. Uh, And I was CEO there for a couple of years as we integrated the firm and grew it. And then I uh, joined the Woodruff Arts Center uh, and was president and CEO there for three years until yesterday. And so today is uh, my first day of not having a formal position.
1: Well, how how was the coffee this morning then?
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was it was good. It was good. I you know I think transitions are both exhilarating and a little sad. I think this transitioning in the time of COVID is also a little tough because you don't get to hug people and you don't get to have you know sort of that 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 final sort of goodbye. So that's a little bit in, in stasis um but i I feel good about um where i'm headed, and i'm also excited for um doing work uh, you know i've said publicly that i want to really come back to every day working on issues of social justice so um I'm excited to get uh, knee deep into that work
0: and and, and you're what, not ready to announce that on this show are you
2: i am i it is a little bit early to announce it on this show
0: <laughs>
1: it's um, just the, it's just the three of us don't worry.
2: Yeah. I, exactly. Nobody else will hear. Um, now, you know, I also think that I've I've only had one break in my career. Every other thing has been absolutely back to back, and so I am going to take this time um,
1: to make sure that I take a little time in between. Well, well, one thing, Doug, just to uh, kind of, I, I know I' spent a lot of time with uh, what you've done here in Atlanta, but one thing I did not know about you: you spent time. Uh, you said a year in India. Yeah. What part of what what part of India were you in? Yeah so we we lived in in Mumbai uh, in downtown okay.
2: Bombay. I worked for the BCG office in Mumbai. Uh, which was fascinating. This was 0405 so this is really the boom time of India. Uh, and also my wife's parents are from India. She grew up in Atlanta but her parents immigrated from India in the 60s. So it also was great because we got to spend time with distant cousins and uncles and visit all parts of the country and India is a third the size of the U.S. with three times the population. So it is a it is a fabulous, wow. fascinating place.
1: Yeah, because I just did. I've, I've not lived there, but had many visits there during part of my GE career. And it to me, uh, it was just my first visit was I would consider life changing in terms of what yeah. you see in the extremes and and frankly, we talk about some of the issues we're facing in the U.S. as well too in terms of wealth disparity, and you see it's so obvious, and yet the, the beauty of the country, there's so much there. So that so yeah, I'm just uh, very interested in your, in your time there. I'm sure it was very...
2: Yeah, it was, you know, a couple of things that really stuck with me. One is, you know, when, from a business perspective, when labor is only uh, less than about a quarter of your total cost structure, it changes the way you think about business, right? So Whereas we throw technology at everything, they throw labor at everything. And so it was sort of interesting to undo business principles that you sort of get um, ingrained in you when you work in the U.S. or or another sort of developed place. Um, So that was on one side. The other was, um, you know, I would walk around Bombay and, you know, a couple of weeks at a time and never see another um, white Caucasian person. And so. It gave me just a little bit of a taste to, to be the other, to be the person who stood out. People would come and they'd ask me where I was from every day. They'd ask me, you know, what my background was. And so, and so that also was, you know, deeply um, um, moving, but also it, it made me do a lot of introspective work about what that feels like, what it is to carry around being, being a minority and vis- a visible minority every day.
0: Is is that what, I am very curious how um, social justice became so core to who you are. You know, I understand you, you came to Emory and you said sort of, you started to get the feel for Atlanta and so forth, but like, was, was, did you grow up, was that a part of conversations in the household? Like, how did that start to really manifest itself?
2: Yeah, you know, these things are sometimes easier retrospectively to figure out. And I, I think for me, um, when I was very, very young, my brother was 13 years older than me. He went to college. He, had, he befriended a guy on his hall who was an African-American cheerleader at the University of Arkansas, football cheerleader. I was a big football fan, even as a little kid. So when I went to visit him, I, I just kind of fell for Arthur. I just thought he was my hero. He got me on the football field. He was this incredible guy. Well, my brother invited Arthur to visit our home. And the reaction when he came to my little town and we took him to the local high school basketball game, you know, people said things, hurled racial slurs. My parents were uncomfortable. They thought something would happen. They wouldn't let him go to the grocery store by himself. And I think it, it triggered something that, frankly, I'd probably been chasing my whole life. But I couldn't square that these people who I loved, my parents, my, you know, my community, would not love this other guy who I loved. And I, I thought, he's, a, he's amazing. Why, what is happening here? My five-year-old mind couldn't figure that out. But I think it really seeded something about, you know why is it that there is no reason for this vitriol towards him, yet it is very, very uncomfortable for all of these folks to have him here? Mm. And that, I think that started it all.
1: So there, there obviously was not a randomness at BCG when you were given the opportunity to work on this project for the Center for Human and Civil Rights. Is that something that was brewing and you pursued it? Or how did that all come about? Because it's just a perfect match in terms of it coming to you. Yeah.
2: See, you know, I had come to the firm, obviously, I had come from a different background, I didn't have an MBA. I'd done this theology thing. So everybody, you know, sort of knew me as that, you know, that uh, that guy who did that other thing, you know, a little bit. But I also had been very open about my interests with partners at the firm, with others. I would talk politics with anybody. I would talk about racial issues. Um, And so it was kind of known that that was an interest of mine. So the truth is, the mayor had used the firm for a lot of different pro bonos. The mayor called and said, I need somebody to help with this. Didn't know me at all. We We had met on the campaign trail, but she didn't know me at all. And one of the partners said, we know the perfect guy who would love to, to do this. And he basically brought it to me. And I you know, I, I share that story a lot with younger people that sometimes folks say, don't bring your passions to the office, especially if they're you know, somewhat political or controversial. But the truth is, I never would have gotten that pro bono project had everyone else not known mm-hmm. that this was an interest of mine and that it was a passion of mine. So no, I didn't pursue it at all. It, it came, it was 10 weeks. And then it just continued to snowball into, you know, 10 years of work.
0: Um, I'm curious, um, you you started off by saying that, I guess it was originally called the Civil Rights Museum, and now it's the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, which, I don't know, 10% of people can get right? Um,
1: yeah, you know, right. It's very long. Sort of and that was, deep... was all within that 90%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> is,
0: is that <laughs> Just a, a silly question, but as you look back, is that... With the name change, would you go back and change it to something simpler, or are you you happy with where it's at?
2: So we actually had a, a very well known branding firm come in um, and do some work around this, and we tried to think of all kinds of you know, do we call it the bridge? Do we call it the right. you know the something like that? Some catchy thing. And the truth was, you know, when when it was when it was being built, the concern was one that we wouldn't get the civil rights history right that we would somehow paper over it or that we would somehow, the, the term that's often used was we would whitewash it. And so we wanted to make sure, we didn't want to call it a human rights center because we didn't want folks to, to incorrectly think we weren't dealing with a real civil rights legacy. By the same token, we wanted them to know we weren't yeah. just dealing with the civil rights legacy. And so we tried to come up with a better name, but, but all in, we needed both civil and human rights because in people's minds, they're distinct even though i think for a lot of us they they very much flow together but we wanted them to to be there you know a lot of people call it the center and that, that's right. fine but actually you know the truth is it is hard to remember but now i'm pretty excited that it that it is named that because i think a lot of people tap into it for their own purposes which was always the mm-hmm. point i mean i don't know if you saw but this week there was a there was a march to remember everyone who's perished in Georgia from COVID. And they came to the Center for Civil and Human Rights and put one heart on the fence for everybody who's perished. And the fact that of all the places they could go, they could go outside of Grady, they could go to you know yeah. some other place that they decide to come there, I think does show that it, it it feels more than just a historical place. And I think the name reflects that.
1: And in terms of it being even uh, where the, if I recall the timing and that whole area surrounding the Tenniel Olympic Park, I mean, everything was really converging. I mean, so the timing had to be perfect and it had to be just a, a great destination within Atlanta. Uh, I, I mean, if you, as you describe it, this is more than just a museum, right? I mean, there's incredible artifacts within the museum as, as well, too. But do you view it, how do you view it even beyond a museum?
2: yeah, so I think I think when when it was founded and from my perspective, uh, it, it, we wanted it to be one that was continually hosting ongoing dialogue and conversation, very tough conversations in a civil way. So how do we how do we really deal with real issues, but how do we not scream at each other? I think, as it has evolved, and Jill Sabat, who's now the CEO and she actually was the human rights curator, so you know she 's been involved with the project since the very beginning, she talks about it in that way, plus it needs to be a, a, a place in which new activists and new movements are born or sustained, and so sort of sort of a bit agnostic to the exact topic, but she is now pushing, and I think it makes a lot of sense for training or for convening around what are the what, how do we move an agenda forward and what's the next movement for human rights? And so now I think it's actually a place that, you know, in the future, you'll see people saying, you know, when we first started this movement for X rights or for X justice, we met at the Center for Civil and Human Rights and we used it as a launching pad. So I think, I think it's around that. I also think, though, you know, I'm biased because I love history, but I think that we do ourselves a disservice in any field if we don't know the historical context of which we're trying to build upon. And there are lots of lessons and there are lots of insights, I think that you can get by really knowing history. So I think that there really is some power in the historical aspect as well, but a history as applied to today.
0: You know, the, the part of that museum that um, impacted me the most was, is the lunch counter experience. Um, and, what struck me the most—it's uh, it, so powerful. You 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 sit, you put on headphones, and you close your eyes, and you imagine that you are, um, si- you know, a, a silent, nonviolent, you know, protester, essentially. But you know, you're sitting down, and you hear around you all the hate that's coming at you. What struck me was for that. What it's three minutes. How, how long is it? It's a, about a minute forty five seconds. Yeah, it's so, it's so short, hmm. and. Yet I was, I mean, I I had tears when I got done with it. And then I thought to myself, that was a minute 45 and it was fake. And it, and I felt it. And I couldn't even imagine being in that situation. And I'm reading um, John Meacham's new book on uh, John Lewis and, and reading about how, um, you know, they're John Lewis and, and everybody who's doing exactly what, you know, you guys set up, they're literally training how to lie on the ground in such a way, in a ball that doesn't let their internal organs get hurt while they get kicked and hit. And and the aspect that's being enforced to them is, it's not that you are trying to resist the urge to fight back. It's not that you are trying to resist the urge to hate. It's that you need to love that person, that that is what they're being trained. Love these people who hate you for who you are and who are beating you and love the policemen that then come arrest you for disrupting the peace for sitting there. And it just, it's just like, you know, it's so hard for certainly for me to appreciate that experience, but I just really love how you guys were able to build something that at least for just a moment was able to put someone who will never experience that into that headspace. Was that a very deliberate to talk? Can you talk about that experience for a second? Yeah, I
2: think it really is a testament to the, the power of design. So the, the creative mind behind the center was, is a guy named George C. Wolfe. Um, and George is a broad, very well-renowned Broadway director, film director, writer. He's won two Tony Awards. Uh, and he conceived, actually, at the very beginning, he conceived the entire civil rights path. And he had a lunch counter experience right there where it is in the center on this you know, hand-drawn sketch. And so we had gone back and forth about what it should be. And it's. And at one point we were in a meeting and, and it was gonna be video and you were gonna see it. And somebody said, well, what if we didn't have video and it was just audio? And George said, that's it, because now people will project themselves into it. It won't be mm-hmm. informational. You, what will happen? You'll put those earphones on, you'll close your eyes, and all of a sudden you will try to be in that moment. And so I think that that was really the incredible insight, right? And the other was, George said, you have to have make it short enough that it's tension throughout. You can't have somebody intellectualizing it, but you need it to be long enough that it feels, you know, you you sort of get the experience. Um, and I think it's just, it's just a remarkable thing. And it takes somebody who's been in the theater to be able to conceive how to do that right. and exactly how to, to make it work. I'll, I'll give you one other interesting insight. George called me one day. And he said, "Doug, are we are you know are we going to use the N word in that exhibition?" And I said, "Well, George, of course it would have been thrown at someone who is African American if they were the protester, or even would have been thrown at a white at a white person. Um, but you know, what do you think?" And he said, "I don't think we should because the moment we use it, people will come out of the experience and they'll start judging whether or not we should have done that." He said, "I think we can create just the same amount of tension without the word." So it's not in there and most people think it is in there. Because again, they're projecting their own experience into it. So it's very interesting about how you sort of design a way in which an audience is giving their own emotions into this very fake experience. The lunch counter is not even real. I mean, we built it. It's not even a historical artifact, right? It's It's just a thing made to look that way. The other story I'll tell you, though, to your point, uh, Charles Black and Lonnie King, who are both freedom riders and sit-in protesters, came to to visit the center before we opened. They had been involved in helping us conceive it, and they did the lunch counter experience. and And I'll never forget. It was just three of us in there, and they they ended. They took the headphones off. They turned around. I said, "What'd you think?" And Lonnie said, "Pretty tame." Mm. He said, "I I sat for five hours and had acid thrown on me. Mm. I mean, the the the." unbelievable links that that the protesters went to, its just incredible. But the the notion of radical love, which is what King called what you're talking about is real. I mean, when I met CT Vivian, um, you know, when we were doing the center, CT looked at me and said, we weren't just liberating people who look like me. We were liberating people who look like you. All the people were caught up in this trap of racism and of, and of Jim Crow segregation. He said, you know, I was working to try to help the police officer and the sheriffs and the people yelling at me too. And I think it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. They had this notion of radical love. They wanted to get everybody out of that horrible, horrible system. Amazing. Yeah.
1: Um- so so one thing you mentioned, you talk about the power of design um, in this, is this um, and creating experiences and immersive, is that something that you had kind of going into this, you know, I guess at the time was a project, obviously it's much more than that now. Did you always have that or did you kind of learn that to see the power of delivering experiences while you were there?
2: So I, I'm, you know, not a designer by training and, and don't yeah. have a facility for it, but but it was very intentional because very early on our conception was that we were trying to build the whole place for people who had not themselves lived through the movement. The whole, the whole big move here was to say, cause we knew we were about 50 years since a lot of these events happened. Yeah. So we weren't dealing, you know, we still had folks alive, but we were really dealing with those folks grandkids who, who had no, you know, all of this was black and white in their mind, the footage, right? The, the, it's not even in color. All that footage, for the most part, is in black and white. It feels very ancient. So the whole point of the center was to try to give them their own experience where they could say, oh, I can now imagine what it felt like to be at the March on Washington, to be at a lunch counter, to be at King's funeral. I, I now have my own connection to that those events. And so that was always the intent. And so we knew we we're going to have to design it in some way that appealed. I mean, one other kind of interesting story. The last thing we did before it opened was we went through and adjusted the lighting so that it worked well for cell phone, iPhone photos, mm. because we mm. knew that people would experience it also via their own technology. They'd want a selfie. They'd want you know, a picture of you know, the lunch counter or whatever it was. And so we relit the lighting levels for that. So there was, a, there was a real intentionality for it to be designed in a way that created those experiences above it being authentic to, like, the lunch counter. It didn't have to be real. It needed to work in that way.
0: Doug, I, I, I sort of want to know from your perspective, we've talked about this before, um, you know, you, at the center of building an experience like this yet, Obviously, being a white man, um, Mm -hmm. I I know that you took that seriously and probably contemplated on that: should I be taking on this project or even taking it for ten years? Um, Can Can you talk about that? Just sort of like it's such a core passion for you, but at the same time, you know, you don't experience many of these things. Um, How do you reconcile that?
2: Yeah. So, you know, one, I think you know, you 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 have to remember that. This idea had come from Evelyn Lowry and Andy Young and Hosea Williams who had talked about something like this for 25 years. So it had organically come out of the movement saying, we need something like this. Shirley Franklin, first female mayor of Atlanta, African-American woman who wasn't in the movement herself, but she was close to that generation. You know, she she was the driver, the public driver of this. Um, A.J. Robinson was deeply, deeply involved. Jewish man. So, you know, we had a coalition of different identities, right? That were that was working on this. But to me, the, the interesting insight, when I first started full-time, I had 125 individual or small group meetings, mostly with people who had lived through the movement. And they would they would sort of test me whether or not I really knew civil rights history, which I knew a lot about. But then I basically would ask them what are you most afraid of when it comes to this project or even this history? And they would give me some version of the answer. I fear that my grandkids won't care about it when I'm gone. And I said, let me be the bridge between you and your grandkids, right? Let me help tell that story so they care and let me help tell the story. So it's not just your grandkids, but it's mine and it's Asian American grandkids and it's Hispanic grandkids. Let's let's make it for anybody who wants to, to participate. And that became the core, right? So it wasn't it, it was this balance, and I and and we did have a lot of people from, from the civil rights generation giving us input and help and critiquing the content. But at the end of the day, it was not trying to be the encyclopedia of the civil rights movement. It was trying to be an experience for those who were younger. And I think that combined with the fact that Atl- I don't think that in any other city someone of my generation and of my color could have been, you know, such a big part of the effort except for Atlanta. Mm. Right in Atlanta, multiracial coalitions have always been the norm. Mayor Ivan Allen's role, of course, is extremely well known in the civil rights movement. I think Atlanta, as a community, is much more comfortable with that multiracial coalition than other places, and so I think that also allowed allowed me to play, you know, this role.
1: So Doug, yeah, it's interesting as, I, uh, as we sit here, just thinking about the legacy, you know, and the moment that you've left that will outlast all of us. It has to be so powerful. So, um, so you, you said it was about 10 years of, of your life, yeah. you know, on this. Yeah. And so you were pretty deliberate uh, early on. You wanted to kind of get them to design and then move on. I mean, how, how was that in terms of kind of stepping away Were you, was it just, you're probably exhausted first of all, because I, I, I obviously starting something from that had to be just exhausting in every aspect yeah. possible, but, yeah. how, but, but at the same time with the conversations the people you met and it's so close to you and your heart, how was just uh, leaving the project or so, the center at the time it was a center at that point?
2: Yeah. So I had, I had made the decision very early on. In fact, when the mayor asked me when mayor Franklin asked me to do it full time, I said, I have two conditions. One of which is when it opens, I leave because I did, I wanted it to not be caught in founder syndrome. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be much bigger because it is much bigger. This topic is so important to so many people that it can't get caught up in the founders. And 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 Shirley Franklin and I and AJ all really agreed with that notion. So one is I felt like that it that it really needed that in order to keep us all honest and and to let it, you know, be, you know, really embraced by everybody else. You know, and I'll just note Arthur Blank is publishing his new book right. and he's, you know, this month and all the proceeds are going to the Center for Civil and Human Rights, right? I mean, a testament yep. to that other people are embracing but I, I'll tell you, so I knew this for 10 years, and it still was highly emotional when I left, knowing that I was going to leave, because because it is very hard to let go of the things you didn't get done, right? I can give you a tour of the exhibitions, and I can show you all the things that aren't in there, all mm-hmm. the ideas that are on the cutting room floor, all the things I wish would have happened, Right. And as a founder, you're, you're constantly fighting to get the project up. But once it's up, you, you still are kind of fighting for the things that are left behind. And I think it was emotional because I had to, I had to let that go. Obviously, you know, it, it's been embraced. It's a, it's a great success. It's what we wanted to happen. Um, so I think it was very emotional um, to do that. Um, I, you know, it's now six years since it opened. And so now I have, you know, most, right. of, most of that has fallen away and it, and it feels pretty good. Um, but I'll also say, you know, Shirley Franklin turned to me um, the day before we opened and she sort of grabbed me by the shoulders and she said, you need to eat up the next couple of days because this doesn't come around very often in a lifetime. And I think that the other thing is, you know, that when you've worked on something big and you found it, you've played that role, you know, that you don't get too many shots like that. And sometimes it's hard to let go because it, you know, because it's that thing. Um, and so, look, I've gone through all those emotions that uh, I absolutely <laughs> believe it was the right decision. Um, and, and, and look, and then when good people like Jill Savitt come and, and to lead mm-hmm. it, it's just a confirmation that, that it was the right thing to do.
0: And I, I love that you said, you know, Atlanta was the place where you you could be a part of that and a part of creating that, right? Um, so let's let's transition for for just a bit here to a topic that I know you two are nuts. nuts
1: oh, about. you're bringing it up. You're bringing I'm it gonna up. This, oh this, man. I'm, I'm going to transition. Oh look, my God. United, I swag. thought you were going to arts or something. This look, is, look, look. okay, we're done. We're
0: I, done. <laughs> I'm a fan, but I'm not like you guys. Um, <laughs> I, I will start with this. Like, you know, I grew up in Atlanta. Um, I went to stone mountain high school. Um, I've been here since I was four years old. Um, I've never seen anything, uh, bring the city together. The way that Atlanta United has. Um, yeah. The closest I can come is in '91 when the Braves were were coming back, worst to first, and then '95 when they won the series. And like, yeah. you'd literally be driving down the road and people would be tomahawk chopping, and it didn't matter. Didn't matter what race you were. It didn't matter who you were. Um, but seeing the. Just how every part of our city has come together around Atlanta United. I'd love to hear your perspective, Doug, on on why you think that happened and the importance, if if you know, if you do see it that way, the importance of this team yeah. for this city.
2: Well, first, I think the corollary with with um, the the early '90s Braves is spot on. I was here for that too. It has the same sort of emotional relevance. You know, I think there are a lot of factors, and people have written about it. The fact that we've had a lot of young people move into the city, the fact that a lot of people haven't grown up with a soccer club so that they can, everybody can embrace it, even if you're a Giants fan or a, or a Knicks fan, it doesn't matter, right? You can embrace this new. But I think the real insight for me is, the, the, the United, as they came out of the gate, really embraced some core Atlanta elements so that this team didn't feel manufactured. It felt like it was drawing on authentic current elements of Atlanta, specifically the hip hop community, specifically a huge embrace of uh, the Latino community, Um, and the use of Spanish chants, et cetera, and just an embrace of real soccer culture. I mean, Darren um, Eels told me a story that, you know, they they wanted to put cheers on the the halo board. And he said, no, in soccer, you don't tell the fans when to cheer. The supporter section, you know, these group of fans tell the other fans when to cheer. And I think this combination of finding unique Atlanta elements combined with the way that soccer works in the rest of the world really created a lot of magic. Um, and I think that it is important because I think that, that one, you know, there are a lot of new folks who don't do sports that have come together around the United. You know, their season ticket base is, is unlike almost any other team. I think, two, they, they, you know, they really have embraced diversity in a way that's just unlike any other fan base that you'll see I mean, there's an LGBTQ supporters group, there's a hip hop supporters group, there's a family supporters group. I can't tell you how many folks in my wife's sort of, you know, uh, extended Indian American community have tickets, follow the team. I mean, it's just incredibly robust. Um, And so I think that's important. And and the other is I think that it also is extremely youthful, right? I mean, it, it is a very young kind of fan base and thus, they can do things like, you know, they have a voter initiative, right? They they have initiatives around social justice. They can embrace the kind of zeitgeist of the moment more broadly in ways that I think a lot of the other sports struggle with. I mean, we've seen what the NFL has gone through around all of the Colin Kaepernick controversies. We've seen what baseball's going through. You know, the NBA, at this moment, I think the NBA and soccer are the two best position and the WNBA, both the NBA and the WNBA and soccer are best positioned to really be active in these ways. And, and I think that it, it is a unique new thing that will help define Atlanta for the next generation.
1: No question about it. So Doug, did you, do you, did you go into your, and, and you know, Jeff knows, you know, uh-huh. Doug and I are like, you know, both super fans here and I've uh, been fortunate to see a few games together as well. But Did you see yourself as a soccer, were you a strong soccer fan first? Did you grow up with soccer or did this make you a soccer fan or how did that, because that's that's an incredible story for each individual fan for Atlanta United, it's so distinct.
2: Yeah, so I didn't grow up a soccer fan. I didn't play, you know, unfortunately in my, you know, my community, we didn't have that. I grew up playing basketball. I grew up a huge basketball fan and I grew up a huge college football fan. I used to go to Arkansas uh, football games. As, as I moved and then I was a uh, you know, huge Braves fan, especially in the 90s, and went to a lot of those games, um, as as I had kids, I knew that I wanted to have a family experience where we went to some sort of games. That was something very nostalgic my dad and I would do. We would go to games, a whole ritual. I had all the garb. I knew all the players, and I wanted to give my kids that. I have two daughters and so, you know, my wife and I were trying to figure out what that sport was going to be, and it just clicked at the right moment for us that this was it. And so I had watched World Cups and, you know, you know, nominally followed soccer. But this really became the, okay, this is what our family can do together. And it happens to be very Atlanta, and it sort of aligns with what I like about Atlanta. And it's a, you know, it's a great time. It's just, it, it feels as close to you know, the college football experience, every single match, I think, is of anything that I've ever seen professionally. And so that's why it works for us. We we wouldn't have, we probably wouldn't have as much engagement without the kids as we do.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, when you look at the fan base, um, people coming from different backgrounds, and, you know, and, I, and I, 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 I like you. Did not grow up with soccer, and then I kind of adopted it when my middle son became huge into soccer at the youth level, and then more competitive. And then all of a sudden, I came across a World Cup, and like, what is this sport? And fell in love with it. And then Atlanta United, the timing was perfect. But I, I think it's beautiful, though. You're talking about one the the kind of tapestry of Atlanta inside Mercedes-Benz Stadium, or just watching it. And it's interesting, you have some soccer purists who sometimes look and get frustrated that people don't understand the rules, but I think that's the beauty of it, that you have so many people so new to the sport, just embracing the club, embracing, embracing yeah. the identity. And I think, to me, that is what makes Atlanta United powerful. It's beautiful soccer, and I think we have a, a, a club that's very committed to being, obviously, a championship level, but it's really even beyond that. It's about identity.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's also... You know, we've, we've talked a lot since the Olympics as a city of, of being an international city, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But, the truth, but the truth is we've struggled a little bit with the entree points for our international communities to, to really find their way into Atlanta. Sometimes a civil rights legacy can be that, but this really can be that. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many folks I've taken to a match and they've said, "Oh yeah, I grew, you know, I grew up in the Netherlands, or I grew up, you know, in such and such." Following, I mean, I think for for folks who are uh, who have backgrounds from other countries, this is the one spot where they find familiar ground because soccer is such a you know such a huge sport globally, but also can find themselves in the fabric of Atlanta very very quickly, and I think that's going to be one of its very lasting legacies: is that that foundational base. I think is going to be very, very strong for a long time. Absolutely,
0: and- I-, I love the story. If I could jump in, the um, yeah. Bobby Dodd standing, the, the yeah. streets and stuff. Do one of you want to tell that story? I'm sure you can tell it better than I can.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the 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 club was going to start their first match. Mercedes-Benz Stadium was running late, so they had, you know, they, they'd they hoped that maybe they could have their first match in the new stadium. They couldn't, so they went to Georgia Tech's Bobby Dodd Stadium, an outdoor stadium, a football stadium, and, you know, nobody knew how many people were really going to show up. Nobody knew what it was going to feel like, and Atlanta, you know, rightly or wrongly, has a little bit of a reputation of not being the best fan um culture for sports you know except maybe around college football no but it's and i mean
0: that's right and i and you said it earlier but like i growing up here like you know my dad was from new york and so it was the giants right and so right right to a falcons game it was to see the giants and it's such a transplant town so i think you hit on something really interesting about land united no one has a soccer team and you know hockey tried here and that's right. everybody had a, you know, like right. had a hockey team. So I do think that's an important thing. And I do think that's why Atlanta's not been a good sports town because most of us that's have right. been raised by our parents' teams. Somebody this else. is the first time you can like, I can own that. So anyways, I just wanted to, that, right. that was such that's a That's exactly
2: sport. right. So, so, no, so to that point, nobody knew if anybody was going to show up with, you know, with garb, with, with you know, with flags or what was going to happen. And I distinctly remember walking up to the stadium and I turned to, I was with my brother-in-law and his wife and my wife and I turned and I said, this is crazy because there were people everywhere. There were people with drums, people already had all of the gear and it was full. And so you walked in the stadium, 50 something thousand people and nobody sat the entire match. Everybody stood the, the entire match, which they lost. And everybody walked away excited, right? It it was just such a different emotional sort of engagement and community. And then when you went back the second match, which I think actually was the most important, because I could have seen the first match kind of being the outlier. But then when you went back the second match, and it was exactly the same. And in fact, the second match was hotter than the first match. I remember it being a really Mm -hmm. hot day. It was an afternoon match and still everybody stood up and still the whole thing was full. And now even more people had the gear because they figured out what it would, you know, what it meant to be a good fan. And then it was off to the races. I mean, it's interesting. Darren and the team have talked about that. They think that that really helped Mm -hmm. the club not being in Mercedes Benz and being in that, you know, that Bobby Dodd environment with the bleachers and such. Um, But I think it really set the whole tone for, for what it meant. I mean, you were expected to, be an active participant in this thing. I mean, it's sort of like the lunch counter in a weird way, right? You weren't just receiving it as entertainment, you had a role. I mean, I think that's the, that's the difference in, in the whole club is that it really feels as if the fans have an active role I mean, even down to, you know, if you don't follow soccer, there's something called a TIFO, which is basically a big banner that's rolled out before the match that's thematic. So it may thank the coach. It may, you know, have something funny about the other team. But it's all done by fans on a volunteer basis. It's really anticipated before every match to see what that TIFO looks like. Again, you're an active participant. You are expected to do something, not just to show up and drink your beer. And I, I think that's cool.
1: And uh, you know, you mentioned, I like, think Darren Eales, uh, you know, would, would said the seats were such a rubbish, you know, over at Bobby Dodd that it forced people to stand. But uh, but he'll yeah. Yeah, acknowledge that it's really created the identity that if it was went to Mercedes Benz Stadium first, people would have been so plush there. People would have just been sitting. Um, and for those who are, who are watching or listening, Darren Eels is the president of Atlanta United. The first president of Atlanta United was the architect. Um, and and we, I think, we're so lucky to get Darren. One to the club and and into Atlanta, and just to give a shameless plug here, we've had him on uh, the Disruptor Studio, and he talks about this Bobby Dodd experience and and what it means. But you know, we've been very fortunate to get to know all three of us to to get to know Darren. Uh, You know, yeah, he is. We were just he was the right person at the right moment at the right time in terms of the ability to embrace the culture of Atlanta and shape the team around that, including the United name, which I you recall, Doug, that at first was like United. That's so generic, but it really has come to be an identity of what Atlanta's all about.
2: Yeah, that's right. I think the other interesting thing about Darren, you know, there's a famous story that he went to pubs for about a year yep. and a half and would just go when English soccer was on or when there was a big sort of international match and he would just drink beers with people and ask them what they wanted out of the club. He was just doing sort of this this friend raising and this research for about a year and a half in pubs. But I think what the United uncovered were a lot of untapped markets that were looking for something to be involved with, or they were already into soccer. You just couldn't see them because they were, they were consuming soccer in very small groups. There was a great um, mini documentary about a 15 minute documentary that was done online about Atlanta's black soccer culture. And you know, there's a huge, there's a huge number of African American folks in Atlanta who play soccer, follow soccer, et cetera. But again, there was no way to see it. You couldn't really see how big that participation already was, except for youth soccer. But these are adult leagues, these are folks watching Premier League on Saturday mornings. I think it was a really interesting tapping into untapped markets
1: yeah and and i think on the youth level um you know with soccer in the streets atlanta united is has been a big supporter of to get more um african-american uh athletes into into soccer um and at the youth academy which traditionally had not occurred as much particularly in soccer they're doing an amazing job and before because i know jeff's going to probably pivot us from you know because we go for the next hour although (laughs) we, we definitely need to talk about arts and creative but real quick, uh, what is your match day? This is, of course, in the non-COVID world. Yeah. What is your match day ritual uh, going uh, going to Mercedes-Benz Stadium?
2: Yeah, so usually um, we have our kids. We usually go um, early enough to see the, the team get off the bus. Before every match, they get off yeah. the bus and they come down and sort of um, give high fives to all of the fans. So we, we usually try to do that. You can sign what's called the golden spike, which is this ritual yeah. beforehand. So we usually sign the spike. Then we go inside and we eat and we, you know, watch a little pregame. And then we hit the match. Another great thing. It's two hours and you're done. It's, yeah. a, it's not that long. We hit the match and we go home. Um, and that's, you know, that's typically what we do. And the kids know the stadium and they know where we like to do things. And, you know, they, they have their favorite places they want to eat. And so that's that's pretty much the ritual. And then the other is, if, the, if it's not with the kids, then typically what I'll do is I'll, I'll invite a couple of people with us. And then we'll go early and we'll basically sit, uh, we'll stand behind our seats and have a beer and catch up. Uh, and it's really interesting. I've never had anybody turn me down in an invitation to go to an Atlanta United match. It, it, is, that is um, it, it is an interesting convener. I think in, in, in lots of, of, of cool ways. So I've, I've been able to catch up with friends I haven't seen in a while by going to a match together. So
1: 2021 Atlanta United match, you and I, Jeff Hillemeyer will be right in the middle, you know, hearing (laughs) the conversations, maybe he'll, you know, learn about offsides or something. That's right. The pitch. The pitch.
2: (laughs)
0: That's right. (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk for a second. We can't, we can't talk with you without um, diving a little bit into the arts. Um, yeah. You obviously um, had the role at Woodruff. So was that, what was arts, like clearly there's a, a call within you around, um, you know, social justice. Um, is arts, was arts a passion for you or did it become, how did that happen?
2: Yeah, I've always been a a big patron of the arts. My college roommate uh, was a theater major. Um, I used to go, because I was at Emory, I used to go to the High and to the Alliance and to the Symphony and to Dad's Garage after college and uh, Actors Express. So I've always been a big patron of the arts. Um, The role was interesting to me specifically because of two reasons. One, the Arts Center continues to, to really open itself up Um, to be more accessible, to be more diverse in its audiences, to be more inclusive of artists and presentations and voices. That work was already happening before I arrived, but I really wanted to accelerate it. I really wanted to find ways to fund it and to make it institutionally, you know, really um, solid. Um, So that was really interesting. And the other is how, you know, in this time when institutions, big institutions, legacy institutions aren't trusted, right. They're really kind of in a bit of a crisis. How do you take a 50-year-old institution mm-hmm. that frankly is pretty has been founded as pretty exclusive, pretty white, pretty wealthy, and how do you take that legacy and, and pivot it without having to destroy it, right? So how do you take this big institution and how do you move it in a way that you you know let's let's not get rid of all that institutional relevance and let's not get rid of all those relationships but how do we move it in a way so that folks who haven't felt comfortable being there do feel comfortable and to me that was an interesting challenge because i i'm a person who really believes that we need those legacy institutions as well as new entities we need both of them right now we can't just burn down the things that you know that we have that have been created in ways that aren't you know that aren't okay. We can't just get rid of those. We got to find a way to reform those. That's my perspective. Some people agree with that. Some people don't. And so, to me, it was really interesting to 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 think about the ways in which this very big institution could pivot. Uh, and I'm excited for the things that have happened um, and the ways in which you know the High Museum now on a daily basis. Outside of students, the visitation is 50% people of color, 50% white, which is about five times better than most every other institution in the country. You know, that it can be done. Now, you know, Atlanta has a little bit easier time because we're so diverse, but it can be done with some work and people feel good about it. People feel feel like the high is reflecting them. It, people feel like the alliance is reflecting them. And so I think to me it was I'm I'm a patron of the arts, but it was really these challenges around the institution itself that were that were most interesting to me.
1: And to kind of ground people on on Woodruff Arts Center in general, kind of talk about what that really is and the fact and if I'm correct, it's the fourth largest art center in the third. country. Yeah, the it's third third the third largest art.
2: Yeah. so it it was founded in the in the late 60s it had come out of this tragedy of um, a a group of over 100 arts patrons were traveling through europe their plane crashed at orly airport in paris in 1962 they died and the art center was a memorial to them that opened in 1968. it's 1501c3 which makes it kind of unique nationally and under that overall umbrella is the Alliance Theater, which is the largest um, regional theater in the Southeast, the High Museum, which is the largest art museum in the Southeast, and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, which is the largest orchestra in the Southeast, as well as kind of all the other things, hosting and education that the, that the Art Center does. So it's really like our Lincoln Center or Kennedy Center. Um, it is the third largest in the country. And, and it has this, you know, this incredible legacy of generations have grown up going to it as students, as families, etc. Um, and it really, you know, it's a, it's a $85 million budget in non-COVID times. Um, it is, a, you know, it hosts a million people a year. It's a, it's a, it's a big place and it also collaborates. There's a, I've always joked that there should be an alumni of Woodruff because so mm. many other artists have somehow been connected as working there, being highlighted there, being, you know, their first play was produced there, whatever the case may be. That it really is a generator, I think, in a lot of ways for a lot of the uh, artistic um, endeavors that happen in Atlanta and beyond.
0: Um, I, so I, I think it's really interesting. You, 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 you started the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. There's me in the ten percent, um, and then you went to something almost exactly opposite, right? Something that, as you pointed out, mostly um, uh, white. Uh, attendees yep. and, and patrons um, stodgy, stodgy maybe in some situations old established you know big you know respected but you know and then so that that just seemed to me it must have been a challenge to you you're like all right I've, I've started something from scratch now bo- helped born that into the city now i 'm going after this was that was the challenge of that sort of what piqued part of your interest
2: yeah I think that, I think that's right I mean I think you know i'm i 'm a big proponent um of that that a leader has to not only match from a skill set perspective, but also has to match the moment, right? And that every leader doesn't necessarily match every moment. And that there are there are cycles and there are stages, you know, different kinds of stages. <clears throat> and obviously at the Center for Civil and Human Rights, I was in the startup stage, right? I was in the creation stage. And that that has a that has a certain set of skills you need and also a certain set of emotion that you need. And, and frankly, just sort of persistence and aggression that you have to have in order to get something across the finish line. Moving an institution is much more of a of a long-term play. It's a much more subtle play. You know, it's a it's a different kind of leadership. And so yeah, I think there was both a challenge there. And also, very much um, instinctually and, and overtly, I you know came in knowing that there were certain things that I wanted to do. Um, there were also just what I call some plumbing things that needed to be done, just the way the organization worked. Mm-hmm. And the and if you're gonna you know if you're gonna pivot into what we're doing now, there are certain things internally that folks won't ever see that just needed to be changed and updated and 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 mm-hmm. and you know uh, really kind of processes improved. And so I knew that there was a, you know, a certain kind of leadership and a certain set of expectations that um, that I was um, going to do. And the truth is, you know, I um, when I came to the Woodruff, it was a three-year commitment. Um, that's what I fulfilled. I didn't know at the end of three years what it would look like. And I think, you know, as things have happened externally, I've just been compelled to dive in. Um, but uh, I think that, you know, again, different leaders, different times um, call for different skills. And as a leader, when you come into it, I think you have to be real honest with yourself about what does this moment call for and what skills am I going to use? And am I going to try to impose myself on the situation? Or am I going to be more reactive to what the situation requires?
1: Doug, mm-hmm. like I remember when I, uh, I believe it was the first time I met you or, or pretty early on, and I started working on this stuff around innovation and tech. And I always had a belief that, you know, create the creative and the arts is something we should embrace into that. And yeah. I remember sitting at the cafe there um, and you started going under this vision of we need to bring tech and innovation into the arts and creative, you know, there was this collision that had to occur, which I just thought was beautiful because it was so uniquely Atlanta. Um, so talk about that a little bit in terms yeah. of kind of your outreach, particularly at Woodruff um, to do that and why you believe that's so important.
2: Yes, yeah, so it's interesting when I arrived at Woodruff a little over three years ago, there was only one person who you would call from the tech community on one of the boards. And there are about mm-hmm. 350 board members across the whole campus because each of the three has a board and then the overall institution has a board. And so that was really kind of curious to me why that was. So so one thing is that we have recruited many board members. We're probably up to 20 or 25 who you'd say, oh, yeah, that person's from the tech community onto the boards across Woodruff. So one, that's good because I think they're just bringing questions and ideas and thoughts and collaborations that, that probably we weren't having brought to the table as readily before. But I think, you know, fundamentally, if I think about the way the economy as, as a whole is going, really, people, you know, change careers a lot. A lot of what we do is in virtual spaces or is in creative spaces, right? I mean, fundamentally, when I talk to the tech sector, they say, we love to recruit former theater kids, graphic mm. designers, people who you know were actors, and now they've become programmers. But just the thought process and that flexibility, because ultimately, artists are problem solvers, right? They've got a problem. They're trying mm. to create something. That's just a problem. that they're, And then they've got materials they're trying to use, and it's never been done before. And so that kind of fundamental ethos of the process, I think, in tech and in, and in the creative arts... Are very much aligned. And I also think that as we sort of project forward, we see that educationally folks who have a a creative background are much better able to deal with the new economy as it continues to flourish than those that don't. And so to me, there's something that's really there. Now, the hard part is, you know, technology is an applied science. And the arts are somewhat applied and somewhat, you know, aesthetic, right? I mean, they're, they're somewhat for the artists to express themselves. And I, so I think what we're all continuing to find is to try to bring those two things together. But I don't know if you, if you guys caught the Virgil Abloh exhibit that it was at the High last year. Virgil Abloh is this, he's this very um, multi-talented guy. He was a trained architect. Then he started a fashion line called Off-White, which is huge. Now he's the menswear designer um, for um, Louis Vuitton. He's also a, a visual artist. He's also done album covers for hip-hop artists. I mean, just this, this multi-talented guy. And he's 39, right? So he's, you know, he's super young. But he's infusing technology in the way that he's creating a lot of his work. And I think we're going to continue to see artists like that. And I think there's gonna begin, there's gonna to continue to be this back and forth between the arts and technology. We're seeing AI now help composers compose mm-hmm. new classical music. we see the way that set design is going with, um, in the theater to be very technologically oriented. There are gonna be shows that frankly are gonna have AI characters in them very soon. And so I think there's a lot of way to bring that together it's just going to continue to be bringing artists and technologists into the same space to co-create. And I think that's going to take a little time because at first they feel like they're on two different paths, but the truth is, I think they're very closely related.
0: Yeah. I I love that, that that's, that's where you were taking things or one aspect of where you were evolving. And I also had uh, conversations in what, I guess that octane that was there, um, with you about that. I, um, I want to transition just a little bit. Um, it's interesting to me that Woodruff, you said, started in 1968, which is a, a, a very important year in this country. Um, yeah. We certainly lost um, Dr. King, but we also lost Bobby Kennedy, um, okay. which I know you you share a passion for for Bobby the way that I do. Um, can you talk just for a minute about why or, or how Bobby's important or what you draw from him? And And then I also want to take that and move into, I feel like, Bobby was 42 when he was assassinated. Um, But I feel like he was just getting started. And in an interesting way, I feel like you're just getting started. I feel like you're just starting to like, clearly you've still got passion. And so what you're going to do next, but that was something that I always felt when I connected Bobby, it's like, he was just getting started sort of, you know, middle of his, you know, and, and yet he was on this trajectory. So anyways, I know we share that and, and, I want to hear, hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah. So, you know, Bobby's a very interesting figure to me because he, he comes from this gilded place, right? I mean, his, his father had been a very prominent ambassador. His brother had been president. He had become attorney general basically because his brother was, was elected, mm-hmm. right? I don't think he would have been elected by Nixon or somebody else, right? So, so he, you know, he's mid-30s and he's basically inherited an enormous amount of access and power. And it's interesting, Charles Black, who I mentioned earlier, um, once told me that he and Bobby had a conversation in 66 or 67, and Bobby turned to Charles and said, I have to thank you because the student protesters taught me um, how to not be a racist. He said, I really didn't understand what was happening in this country African American people until I really interacted with you all, and I have to thank you for helping me learn. And I think that embodies that that Bobby in 66, 67, 68 is really understand, starting to really deeply understand what we would now call privilege, right? his 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 economic privilege, his racial privilege. He's really starting to grapple with that. And he's also what I love about Bobby is he's putting himself deeply in situations where he is touching other people you know he goes to India, goes to south africa he goes to appalachia and he listens right he doesn't preach he listens and he walks and he and he's really trying to digest what's happening and then he's trying to come forward with some sort of notion of how to how to help you know to me that's super inspirational because here's somebody who didn't have to who's already got all this power and access yet he's humbling himself to go and say these folks have something to teach me that I don't know. And I know that I don't know it. And so that's very, very inspirational. And I do think it's, it's an incredibly, uh, an incredible loss for the country that he was, that he was murdered so early on. But I think that lesson of how do you, how do you put yourself in, in the position that you can hear other people's stories and that then you can start to think about how you can uniquely contribute to, you know, bettering the conditions. I think that's what I really take away from Bobby. And the other thing that I, you know, you know, there's a very famous um, speech that he gives when Dr. King is killed. He's in, Indianapolis, in Indianapolis campaigning. Yep. John Lewis is, is with him, actually. John Lewis is is at the foot of that stage because he had been campaigning with Bobby on that day. And Bobby quotes the Greeks to talk about the pain and the tragedy. I also, you know, I have a soft spot for Bobby because he loves history and he quotes poetry and 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 he's he's going back to sort of these universal truths that I also think is just super powerful. And so I, you know, I take a lot from, from Bobby's life.
0: When, um, when Dr. King died, um, uh, in 68, um, John Lewis sort of famously said, "At least we still have Bobby." And then two months later, Bobby was assassinated. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, it's just um, what what I like about Bobby too is that you know you you hit on it, but like um, he changed. He did. You know, he, even hit him and and Jack were they were they were trying to slow the movement down, um, Dr. King. Like they were like, "Look, we know this needs to happen, but you guys need to slow down." And these, you know. These uh, freedom rides and stuff—you guys need to stop that. They didn't get it right, and and it took time. It took Bobby listening, and that's you know to go full circle to the experience you created at the the center. um, I just think that's the thing, like the the ability to listen and to have empathy and to just try to understand what someone else might have gone through. That's what's inspiring to me about Bobby. When I when I sort of um, give give talks to, especially to students, one of the things I say is like, I've got every privilege a human being can have. And I usually say, other than I wasn't born a Kennedy, which means, you know, I wasn't born rich, but I am, you know, white, straight, male, whatever. Um, but Bobby was. And, and so, so that's, yeah. I, I draw from that. So anyways. I and just, to- and just one of the,
2: and just one other point there, you know, as, as we are in this moment, and I think, I think a lot of white folks are, are trying to Really feel a burden to do more. A lot of white folks have come to me and said, "Look, in this moment of social justice, Black Lives Matter. What can I do?" I think a lot of times we we try to intellectualize that. We want to read a book. We want to study the problem. We want to keep it in our mind. And again, I think Bobby shows us that it it needs to be in our feet and it needs to be in our hands and it needs to be it needs to be we need to find ways to touch it. I know that's hard in COVID at the moment, but but you know in so many ways he's he's actually creating relationships it's not in a book for him he's really actually interacting and i think that's such an important lesson if people are really serious about knowing more they need to put themselves in in experiences that are real that then they have to grapple with what it felt like what it tasted like what it you know what i heard when i looked in that person's eyes what did they tell me not just in a book
0: yeah, I mean, he went and fasted with Cesar Chavez. I mean, he, you know, he he definitely got in there. Um, <clears throat> so, again, I could talk to you about an hour on this. It's just, <laughs> just the way that Alex could talk to you about yeah. Atlanta United. I do yeah. want to take that and say, okay, I, I really do feel like it seems like you are just getting started. And, and you've had these incredible experiences. And, um, you know, while you may or may not know exactly what's next and you may or may not be willing to share that, I, I would love for you to just talk about the directions you want to head and the types of yeah. things you want to affect um, and, and uh, you know, sh- sure. share at least directionally what you're thinking.
2: Well, you know, I think for me over time, the, the key question that, that I've always come back to is how can I uniquely contribute given my own identity, background, skill set, etc. How can I uniquely contribute to something that's going to have a real fundamental impact? And, and Shirley Franklin once told me that the, the best advice she ever got as mayor was that the mayor of Denver had told her, you're going to work on a lot of fires, you're going to answer a lot of emails, you're going to respond, but every week you ought to carve out time for something that will matter 50 years from now, because that will, one, be probably your legacy, but two, thinking on a 50-year timeline will change the way you do everything else, because it will force you to build things and make decisions in a different way. And so to me, you know, I'm thinking about things that are going to matter 50 years from now, which is really kind of the, you know, my kids and their kids kind of impact. Two, I do come back to that question of, you know, I have, I have had very unique experiences. I've lived in another country. Uh, you know, my, my family by marriage is, is, you know, an immigrant community. I have spent a lot of time with civil rights icons and with foot soldiers and have and have learned from them. You know, I have these kind of unique experiences. So how do I how do I bring those to bear? And I think the other is look, it, as I read the the issues of, of the conversations around social justice and inequality, you know, I keep coming back to if we don't fundamentally change some policies, we're not gonna fundamentally change outcomes. I don't think that that the corporate sector or the philanthropic sector, that those two sectors alone can address really the structural issues that we're struggling with. You know, I'll give you one stat, you know, before COVID, in the city of Atlanta, the poverty rate was 25%, which means it's probably 30% now, you know, when it comes to COVID. Thir- almost a third of people are in poverty in our city. It, it's just unacceptable. But without policy and philanthropy and the business sector, I don't think we're gonna really move that needle. And so I keep coming back to the, the policy questions. What what are the ways in which we can really affect policy that's not zero sum. So we're gonna penalize one group to to you know to help an issue, but we do have to really think about the way that, that regulations work, that budgets work, that money flows, that we're investing enough In small businesses that were investing enough in entrepreneurs in in neighborhoods that don't have a lot of entrepreneurism, those kinds of questions I think are the ones that are on my mind. So I'm doing actually I'm doing a little bit of grad school too. I I have to admit I'm I'm sort of delving back into um, some of the public policy issues that I you know that I haven't been around for a while just to try to to understand what I think are the biggest levers right now to address some of these issues because fundamentally at the end of the day. In my opinion, we're leaving a whole lot of talent out of our society right now, Mm -hmm. right? There are a whole bunch of smart people that are never getting the chance to really flourish. And so there's a big unlock here. There's a big, I mean, imagine if we had instead of 30% poverty, 5% poverty, 25% of folks were finding their own way to start their own businesses or be part of the creative economy or be a part of the next nonprofit. I mean, to me, it's an investment that has enormous upside, but I'm thinking about, you know, what are the right kind of interventions? And then also what role can I uniquely play on it? I mean, it's very, as you can tell, it's very centered on Atlanta. I mean, I don't want to go Mm any place. I I think there are a lot of unique assets here to pull from. uh, And I'm, I'm, you know, have have deeply connected with this place over a long time, Um, but I'm still trying to figure out exactly what it is.
1: Well, well, Doug. For this being day one of the day of figuring out what it is, you got a lot on your plate. So, <laughs> first of all, I want to say thank you so much for well, not only being on the show, but really everything you've done for Atlanta. I mean, when you kind of go through our discussion here, um, you know, there's there's things that I, I, it's so cool. There's so sort of things that's going to last all of us. You've really been part of or have started. So, thanks for that. But, but I know we uh, will going to be hearing from you a lot. Uh, I'm I'm sure we'll have you back on the. Podcast here at some point. I am sure we're going to figure out a way to have a recurring LA United series as well too. I love it. But you know, love we'll, it. we'll talk about that offline. But um, but but seriously, thank you for um, uh, for being here on the Jeff and Alex podcast.
2: Oh, thank you guys. I appreciate the chance, and uh, I am happy to chat
0: anytime.
1: Thanks, Doug. Thanks. That was Doug Shipman here on the Jeff and Alex podcast, and. Wow. What'd you think about Jeff? That was, that was a great conversation.
0: Well, I have to say he's my favorite guest so far. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> we'll <laughs> tell him he's
1: number one of one right now.
0: <laughs> so I get to say that at this point. Oh, I just, you know, I think both of us, we could have kept that going for hours. We'll have to do a part two, but um, I was just, I was just really impressed with how thoughtful he is about um, yeah. the things that he's done in his life, the impact that he wants to make, Um, his lessons on leadership, just just really inspiring.
1: Yeah, and and look, there's some uh, great, you know, you you think you know someone, but, you know, obviously Doug is very much in the public eye with his role, but then uh, hearing little things that kind of shaped him, which I think is always amazing, like his time in India, um, his personal passions. Of course, I got to hear about you and his, uh, y- your collective passion about mm-hmm. Bobby Kennedy and, of course, our passion about Atlanta United. But more importantly, really how um, all that really shapes him and it's in everything we do. So I'm excited to hear about what's next for him. Yeah, me and, too. you know, we couldn't get the big announcement here or whatever that could be, but hopefully we will soon. But That's good. Well, thanks everybody for joining us here on the Jeff Jeff and Alex podcast. If you are on YouTube, make sure you subscribe. If you're on a podcast platform, make sure you also subscribe um, and download and share um, as much as you want. Um, Jeff, it's good to see you. You too, Alex. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week on the Jeff and Alex podcast.